Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we, as always, unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm, and joining me is Danny Crichton, TechCrunch's managing editor. Danny, how are you? I'm doing awesome, Alex. A lot of really positive, great news to talk about this week. Yeah, this is going to be the uh, the single most enthusiastic, optimistic, and sunny show we've ever recorded in the history of Equity. But first, there's been a discussion among the Equity host union club that Danny and I are the two members of, in which we like to demand that our profanity does not get cut from the final edit of the show. Uh, that grievance has been filed, and uh, we'll see how it works out with post. But we're going to dig into some... We had a lot of stuff to go over today, Danny. First up, though, is a new Kleiner fund, which is pretty exciting news. But it's uh, exciting twice, because also, this is the first story that our newest hire wrote for TechCrunch.com. So a big welcome from us to Natasha Moscarenas. Have you met her yet, Denny? I have met her. She was at the TechCrunch winter party, and uh, as were most of our listeners. <laughs> Maybe not most. Hopefully some of our listeners. But uh, Natasha's uh, reporting out of San Francisco covering the venture capital beat. We are very sad to have lost Kate Clark, but we're very excited for Natasha to, to jump in and uh, dive into some of the heavy news going out of San Francisco these days. And speaking of which, Kleiner Perkins does have a new fund. A couple of high-level facts here before we talk about what's going on. It is a $700 million fund for early stage companies. Now, recall that their last fund was $600 million, and the fund before that was $400 million. So largest one in a little bit. And uh, the pace at which they had spent their last fund was a bit of a news item. In 14 months, they had put their entire $600 million vehicle to work. So Danny, as a former VC, is that too fast or is that just, you know, contentedly aggressive? It is fast, but as always, you know, the, the hope is that every deal that they're doing is good. And if you have a lot of great deals coming through the pipeline, you know, hopefully they're they're spending them when they, they come in. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I mean, certainly the deals were good enough that they got even more money so quickly. So like for Kleiner Perkins, it feels relatively bullish. I mean, to get more money at that space and also to go up 300 million or 75% across just two funds is is impressive to me. Yeah, I mean, Kleiner had obviously went through, and keep in mind, this is just the early stage fund, right? So they used to have a growth fund that was run by Mary Meeker, which spun out as bond capital. So yes. the fund size, you know, collectively, they had very large funds. They got compressed down to a small size when it was only early stage, and now it's being rebuilt by Mamoon, who came in from Social Cap, who used to work with Chamath. Yeah, so let's go ahead and talk about the, the branding here, because this is the second time in which they've done some branding that kind of caught our attention. So back when they put together the preceding fund, which I believe was their 18th, they had some back to the future branding. They were talking about how like, you know, they're, they're back, I think was the idea. Like, this is the new Kleiner Perkins. Like, it's like the old Kleiner Perkins, but it's a new. And now they're doing like Return of the Jedis or something like that, which is a Star Wars reference that I don't fully get. Like, I've seen the movies, but I don't care. So I'm curious if you could explain to everyone with us today, what that branding means. I think I think Kleiner wants to play the role of Jabba the Hutt. I see. And it, it wants to sign term sheets on a large sailing barge on a, on a desert in California. That That's what I took away from it. Uh, so kind of like Burning Man, but worse. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, so I take it you don't know what it's I supposed to no be. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, think, I think the exact line they used was, what was it? Returns of the Jedi or something like this. Oh. There, there was some horrifying pun that never would have gone through our edit, but obviously uh, uh, the editorial standards over at, uh, over there might not be the same as we have over here. Okay, listen, we, we mock. We do. We do mock. We mock with, with mean and cruel intention. But also, like, is it any worse than just not branding it and calling it, you know, Fun 19? I don't know. I mean, three points for creativity, minus three points for the selection. So it's a wash, in my view. Some stats for everyone. They made 34 investments out of the preceding fund, the $600 million vehicle. 
30 of those were seed and series A and seed stage deals. So mostly very early. They did four, quote, high inflection series Bs. And that ratio feels pretty reasonable to me. There's a one more factor, though, to talk about, which is in Natasha's piece, she talks about one of the um, partners who said that they put out 18 series A term sheets. All of them work. So they had like a 100% success rate. And before the show, we were talking about this and trying to figure out what we thought. And Dan, you had a point about success rates that I think is worth sharing. So tell people why that number isn't as good as you might think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, for the best companies, you know, think think like the number one or two or three companies every year, you know, startups that are raising the Series A. Obviously, dozens of VCs are chasing that deal up and down Sand Hill and across South Park, San Francisco. Most people are going to lose, right? There's one term sheet. Yep. Everyone else is going to lose. So on one hand, hearing that they're really successful in getting Series A's done is fantastic, right? Because that's sort of the storyline. Kleiner yep. has had some tough years. They've come back. On the flip side, you know, you can walk down to any person on, on University Avenue, Palo Alto, hand out a $10 million check, and they're going to take it, <laughs> right? Yep. So the, the challenge here is understanding, you know, are they in the right companies? Are they investing in the competitive deals? And are they winning against, you know, tough other firms that are in their peer group? That's that's the question that we'll be, you know, we're going to see over the next couple of years. But when I hear 100%, I feel, gee, maybe they're not targeting the, the hardest companies to get into. Yeah. And that kind of like the math that, that looks good, but might not be reminds me a little bit about, I think it was Michael Seibel at YC. We were talking about the graduation rate from YC back companies to series A and it was X percent. I forget what it was. And I was like, oh, okay. It's, it's interesting. That's, you know, is, is that high? Is that low? He goes, maybe it's too high. Maybe we should be taking more crazy companies on and making more wild bets and trying to take on more risk to find the real outlier companies. Maybe we're too good at pattern matching and maybe that's a down a bad thing. So it, it's good to think about numbers in reverse whenever they're touted as successes. But we should move on. Lots to talk about. Atrium is one of the biggest stories of this week. What happens when you take legal services, $75 million, and a famous founder? Well, it turns out you return the capital and shut the business down, which was a surprise to a lot of people, including Andreessen, who led the Series B. So Danny, for people who don't know Justin Kahn, how would you sum him up and the uh, the kind of genesis of this company? Justin Kahn is a multi-time entrepreneur, so he's most famous for being one of the co-founders of Justin.tv, famously behind Twitch, and you know, which sold to for a billion dollars to Amazon a number of years ago. This was a huge kind of lateral shift for him. I mean, it was not a market that he knew. He was kind of from the consumer background, moving into legal services for startups, obviously very well known because of the YC community, had sort of an innate kind of customer list, if you will, for a lot of those folks. But but legal services are not online video streaming and it's a much more complex regulated area. The, the models are much more complicated in terms of revenues. And and frankly, the company faces a lot of competition. I mean, there's other uh, startups like Clerky who've been very popular over the years. It's not a clear at all that they ever really broke through that. So Clerky, I've never heard of that company before. Thank you for telling me about it. But that name is amazing. It's the first startup name I've heard in a couple of days that I'm really obsessed about. I love that. And it's it's spelled exactly as you expect, Alex. Uh, K-L-3-E-R-K-7, <laughs> exactly. but upside down? That's exactly right. It requires an umlaut. I mean, look, it's it's easier to get uh, my mind around than Atrium, which sounds like lobby, which sounds like any company in the world. And here they had 100 employees. And, and my read of this uh, situation, Danny, is that it was the correct identification of a problem space, but not the correct identification of a solution to it. And so I think that when they tried to convert legal services into, I presume, software, it just didn't quite reach a point in which they were delivering enough value to make it worth continuing. But, you know, they're not going to be the last company to try this because the legal services market for startups and young companies is enormous as people know. I know lawyers that just do seed and early stage legal work for startups here in my local area and they're busy because there's a lot to do. So there's there's definitely a lot to go there. We brought this up everyone because 
we've been talking about founders and, and who's raising seed money and who gets access to it. And, you know, I think that this goes to show that not every founder who's had a success or two is going to be able to pull it off a third time. And that's not to be shameful. It's not a bad thing, but it's just, you know, there's no guaranteed win in the startup game. Uh, anything else, Danny, before we talk about Oyo that you want to add I, to that? I think one of the challenges, I mean, uh, legal services obviously has been a huge target for a lot of startups. And I, I think mm. one of the, you know, even something like Stripe Atlas, right, is in many ways like a legal kind of product. And some of the feedback I've gotten has been fairly negative on Stripe Atlas as well. And, you know, legal is one of those cases where it looks very repeatable. It looks like it's the same for every company. And it's never the same. It's it, The devil's in the details, as any lawyer will tell you. And so the challenge is when you're trying to productize these marketplaces is, you know, you can't just copy the docs from another company and expect them to work, you know, out of the box. Like you might have employees in different states. You might have slightly different re- legal arrangements. And so it's really hard to productize unlike, you know, online streaming or typical consumer products. So I think I think that's where they ran up to. They did not return their capital to, to be one careful correction. They, they spent most of it. They returned some capital. Oh, that's what I meant. Yes, I apologize. There was a, a chunk of capital you know, some percentage of the capital was handed back, presumably to Andreessen because they were most recent investor. But 75 million probably returned, I don't know, 10, 20 would be my yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100 I, people, I, I, lots of lawyers, very expensive. So, I mean, it, it is almost a complete loss and, uh, you know, a sad failure there. But, yeah. you know, continuing on, on to, to more happy news or, or unhappy news, Oyo Hotels. So this is a, a soft bank back company worth almost $10 billion based in India. The, the founder was actually the first Indian national Teal Fellow. So he has been in sort of these circles for a long time. Built Oyo as sort of, a, I guess I would call it the Holiday Inn Express for middle-class Indians. You're traveling around Southeast Asia. They have, uh, you know, in China, it's it's meant to be, it's a brand. So it's not, they don't own the actual facilities, but the idea is that they have consistent bedding, the Wi-Fi works, you know, the walls are painted, the the check-in system. Minimum standard of, of service. Yeah, and you know what you're getting every single time. So right. it's, it's maybe not literally the Holiday Inn Express, but it's kind of like the Holiday Inn Express, free parking. But um, really, because uh, partly because I think coronavirus plus some massive overexpansion, which not like we've seen that with a SoftBank Vision Fund company before. Never, uh, they, not once. they announced yesterday layoffs of 18% of the company or 6,000 people, which has to be, I mean, there have been a lot of layoffs from the pizza box company, uh, sorry, sustainable, no, sustainable mm. pizza box company now. True. But, but uh, 6,000 has got to be one of the largest, even including WeWork. So they, they knocked out 6,000 people, three out of, I believe, 6,000 of those are going to be in China. And they're basically going to shut down their Chinese operations. And so huge loss there for particularly, I think this is the second or third highest valued company in the SoftBank portfolio. Yeah, it um, is. And not the first round of layoffs for this company either. No. So this is this is a, a, a second or third cut. A uh, couple of questions that I don't know if we know the answer to these, but you know, if Oyo does do as much um, branding of other hotels as we know that it does, and therefore it doesn't own the facilities, why did it have so many employees? You know, this is like the old question people ask about Uber. Like if they don't own the cars and they don't pay for them, they don't service them, who works there? And the answer is it turns out thousands of people. But uh, if they had 6,000 people to cut, which apparently they did, which is just 18%. I mean, they must have just had an insane expense cost structure. Yeah, and a lot of that was expansion related, right? So they're going into these hotels, they're monitoring them, they're auditing them, they're making sure they're up to speed. So I, I think they're bringing up on like something like tens of thousands of hotels in the next two years. Like the, the numbers are insane. Every number I've ever seen in this company is insane. Part of that has been like, some of that is exaggerated. The New York Times has reported that a lot of those numbers are way out of proportion to reality. But the reality is, is that there were thousands of people working there, and clearly they're going to be looking for new jobs, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great time to be undergoing layoffs. China is just getting back online after an extended period of lockdown due to the novel coronavirus. And kind of one more knock against Oyo, a company that has a history of problems, one more knock for Vision Fund 1, which poured capital into it. 
and uh, yeesh is what I'll say about that. But continuing our wincing today as this show goes along, when Jenny said at the top that it was a happy show, he was lying, as you've now found out. Uh, that <laughs> I was lie the half th- the time. It's just unclear which ones are the lies. I've gotten better at discerning, but while well, well, we're keeping this, this theme of negativity alive this week, because that's just how things went, Robin Hood, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about this if you're listening in now, but Robin Hood went down uh, on Monday, and then it went down again uh, on Tuesday, and, it, and then it, it tried to give away free credits to its gold service as a recompense to people that could have lost you know, a lot of money in the downtime. Uh, and, and they claimed, Danny, that it was due to a couple of things, you know, huge load, tons of trading, active markets, big signups. When you read their apology and the reasons for it, I'm curious, what was your gut reaction to it? Well, I think it's funny because, you know, Robinhood, like both proverbially and the startup itself, you know, stole from the rich to give to the poor. And the downturn was sort of like Robinhood stealing from the poor to give to the rich because mm-hmm. with the, the rise in, in shares on Monday and on Tuesday this week, essentially the people who are on Robinhood who are, you know, are day traders, or, you know, usually as we've talked on the show, have much smaller portfolios than, yep. you know, incumbents like E-Trade or whatnot. Um, really, did, they they lost out like, you know, thousands of points across the week. And not only that, but the, the downtime was so long. I mean, it's unusual. I mean, there are so many cloud services and reliability backup services in place that kind of extended downtimes of almost a day. I mean, I think I think it was the entire trading day plus a little bit the next morning. So, you know, obviously reading online, people who expect things for free have the highest demands, which is the irony of most customers. <laughs> um, but like a lot of people are like, I'm going to switch and I'm going to get out and I want to go somewhere else. And, and yeah, I, the reality is, I think a ton of platforms have these challenges. Like, I, I'm not sure... You know, I don't, I don't literally know off the top of my head, has Charles Schwab ever had downtime in the entire history of, of I'm, I'm sure company? I'm sure it has, right? But but I think, you know, given Robinhood's kind of huge media savvy and connections, like the fact of the matter is, is that a ton of people now are, are questioning like the reliability of a platform they're not paying for. So I think it'll be, you know, with a, with a potential IPO coming up so soon, it's a huge knock. I mean, similar to Air, we're going to get to Airbnb as the next bad piece of news at some point. But like, you know, <laughs> we have a bunch of companies right on the docket to go out to IPO. And like, what a black eye to go to the public markets, which is doubly ironic because you need to have liquidity in the public markets to actually buy shares yep. with, a pro- you know, a product that basically said you can't buy. And the most important tr- single trading day I think we've probably had in, in, in years. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a simply insane few weeks in the market, which is why I'm going bald at an accelerated pace because the stress is just actually going to. Oh, take that's what away. it is. Yeah, yeah, oh, that, that's it's not it's not nature. It's just pure stress from the market, jerk. Uh, anywho, and Nebby, you just totally I, I, knocked me off my point. Well, <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem with podcasting. I, I'm getting bald. I get bald. I, I lose another half inch of my hairline every time our producer cuts one of my words out. Oh, look at that right there. Now you're going to be a half an inch shorter because that's definitely going to get removed because that was gratuitous, unnecessary, and easy to edit out. So yeah. <laughs> if, if you could see us all on Zoom as we record this, our producer is laughing. He's cackling. Okay, back to my point that I now recall. If this was Robin Hood's first mistake or first set of mistakes, I think they would have gotten a much freer pass. If they had never had a glitch before, never made a mistake, I think they could have gotten away with this. But do you recall the rollout of their putatively 3% high yield savings account that ran into regulatory issues and had to get yanked. Do you recall the, the, I think it was December 2018 options outage? Do you recall the recent options issues in which people could essentially lever themselves up infinitely? I mean, this is a company that has a history of operational mistakes and they're dealing with tons of money, millions of user accounts, complex financial products, and people depend on them to, in the case of day traders, make a living slash lose their money or just to manage their investments and their net worth. You can't fail. This is not startup land. This is this is a large financial services company 
that needs to be built like a slab of granite. And anything that detracts from that is is unacceptable. And I think this issue, this downtime is particularly bad because Robinhood now doesn't look like the mature business that you want to take public. It looks like a, like an adolescent startup that's still struggling. And if you're worth $7.6, $7.7 billion, not a great look. Just not. No, I, I agree 100%, Alex. I, I would give one exception, though, which is, you know, the old commission broker model, people just didn't trade as often, right? Like if you think yeah. of volumes, you're not only dealing with many more user accounts. I think because it's free, they trade far more frequently, they're day trading, maybe even a share at a time. And so the robustness of the systems that you need, you know, you're, you're paying nothing for almost instant trading. In the old days, I mean, in the old, old days, you know, it took days to, <laughs> to settle your, your shares, right? Like you, you called a broker who would then fill out paperwork and now we expect it instantaneously. So, you know, on the positive side, I think they actually have a much better scale, but with scale comes challenges and, and clearly they haven't fixed them all. Yeah, and I don't think three months of Robinhood gold is going to swash people that, uh, I mean, look, no one recommends Wall Street Bets as a place to hang out on Reddit. But if you are interested in how people use Robinhood to make trades, you might read it. And if you did read it on those two dates, you saw people posting screenshots of losses, things they couldn't fix because they couldn't sell. And they had to endure sitting there watching their money go up in flames, effectively. And so I don't think $15 in in-store credit is going to do it because um, it's, it's just not. I mean... Here's what scares me. If that was their opening offer, if that was their opening bid, they don't have anything else to give because they probably can't afford to make people whole. So they're like, here, have some free crap. It's the fool's gold of stock investing. I mean, it's it's uh, that that was in some ways I have to give a a cookie to people. But like, again, it's free. I mean, what do you give to people? It's like, hey, we'll we'll make it even freer. Well, I think I think people get like Morningstar rankings or something like that. You know what day traders don't care about is Morningstar rankings. Yeah. <laughs> this is just, here's something exactly. you can't use. Merry exactly. Christmas. Exactly. All right. Let's let's put a pen in the sadness and negativity for a minute and pivot to a win because, you know, this is a show in which we talk about wins as well. And we have been discussing too much. I want to stop talking about it, but we can't. The coronavirus and the impacts around the world. And what this has done to the workforce and startups and trade and the economy and the stock market, it's been a holistic global impact. And one thing that people have been asking is, you know, as a lot of companies send their workers home, both startups and major tech companies alike, what is this doing for demand for services that facilitate remote work or make it easier? And one of those companies uh, is Zoom. You know, I mentioned we were using Zoom a little bit ago. We record audio locally for when we're remote, but we use Zoom so we can see each other and stare into the eyes of one another that way we can have a more fun podcast for you to listen to. People were bidding Zoom shares up in the expectation that this global impact would drive signups and more revenue for Zoom shares because Zoom was benefiting theoretically from this global pandemic, frankly. And uh, they reported earnings yesterday and the earnings were good for, for Zoom. They beat both on profitability adjusted and they also beat on revenue growth and their forecasts for the uh, current calendar year, kind of their next fiscal year roughly, were ahead of expectations. Danny, and uh, I grabbed some quotes from the earnings reports. They talk about the coronavirus, but they don't have a lot of financial impacts yet. They've seen usage impacts. And so what I think we're seeing here is the possibility that there is more demand coming to remote work style products, and that could bolster startups in that space. Does that make sense to you, Danny, or am I talking out of my left ear? 
No, I think it makes total sense. I mean, look, we, we talked about it just, what, a week or two ago in the coronavirus context where we said it was the $32 billion market cap county. Now it's $34 billion. So they've go. accrued $2 billion in just a week or two. Obviously, the markets are up. Zoom's up 5.42% right as we're recording. But, you know, what I thought was interesting about the call was they were actually being very um, reasonable. Like, not they weren't overselling, like, the coronavirus is just going to suddenly, like, change everything because a lot of those people are joining the free tier. You know, a lot of the people are not actually paying. I think there's actually a part of the call where they were talking about how their gross margin is actually not going to improve all that much. It's going to get worse, um, it's actually, actually. It's actually going to get worse because a lot yeah. of the uh, f- folks joining are for free. So there's expenses, but we're not getting revenues. But but I think what they're saying is, is, is there's going to be a psychological change around Zoom, video conferencing, remote work. That's been my thesis as well. So I, I actually think it's really exciting, but it'll take time for it to show up in the earnings. People have to convert. They have to go through the conversion funnels that Zoom has mm-hmm. set up. It'll take time to write big enterprise site licenses. You know, we talked, I think, recently about how Slack got a massive deal with IBM, or maybe we yeah. didn't talk about that might have been on Slack <laughs> rather than on Equity. <laughs> but you and I but, have talked about that. I don't know if it was on the show or not. I'm not sure on the show, show but you know, they, right. they signed a, what, 144,000, you know, seat deal with Slack. Like those are the kinds of deals that Zoom still has to do for a lot of large companies. And so the more decision makers that think the video conferencing is important, the better it is going to be for them long term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, this is equity. We care about more about startups. And so I, I only really bring all this up not to just talk about a 2019 IPO or a cool company that we all kind of use, but just like, you know, if if companies that are making remote work easier are seeing an uptick, it will help a lot of companies that were working in related areas. And in fact, I asked people to send me in notes from their companies about growth. And I have a post coming out, if I can get it done, uh, kind of collating a bunch of those. And people that do remote-ish things are seen a sign up, especially they say in countries where coronavirus is spiking, like uh, Italy and South Korea and so forth. So the expected result is happening, which is the least surprising news, but it's cool to see that we weren't totally off our rockers earlier. Now we're going to, do you want to do Airbnb now and then close with Seed Insights? Because I think that will put the bad news now sure. and we'll close with the that, good that's, news. We're going we're gonna to just talk about the agenda live on the air. Well, this this equity is designed to be a conversation between ourselves and about a bajillion friends that listen in every week. So hi, everybody. <laughs> this is what equity sounds like. But we don't listen to unless they tweet at us. Um, we uh, Look, we every equity tweet that comes in, I read. Every equity email that comes in, I read. Uh, so if you ever want to waste my time, you, you feel free to pull that lever. But let's do Airbnb and then we'll talk about Seed. Danny, with the Airbnb news is effectively that they might postpone the IPO, right? That's right. So so in Airbnb's case, the information reported recently that Airbnb has a huge challenge, which is they gave out starting in around, I, w- I want to say 2013, 2014, they switched from giving stock options to restricted stock units or RSUs, which is a form of um, compensation often given at startups that is tax preferred. So for, for employees, when you get a stock option, you actually have to pay mm-hmm. at the strike price, um, which can be very expensive if those strike prices get very high. It's pretty cheap when it's super early in the company, the company's not worth anything. And so often at some point, there's an inflection point where startups will switch to an RSU model, which allows delaying taxes until a, a, an IPO. Um, the, the challenge in Airbnb's case, according to the information, is, is that those original RSUs are hitting their seven-year um, timeline. So it's been seven years since they were given out, and under IRS rules, seven years is sort of the limit. And at that point, they expire. And so for comp- you know, employees of Airbnb who were there in 2013, 2014, they're coming up to the limit. And if they don't actually do something, create some sort of liquidity for those, those shares, which means going public, there's really not a lot of great options. They could reissue RSUs, but then they'd be reissued at the, at the new price, which would be taxed at the new price. There's no yeah. capital gains. There's just a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of problems. So, so Airbnb has this like really weird window, which is like, hopefully coronavirus stops 
global tourism rises yeah. just before the RSU window closes. Yeah. Or do you know what they could have done is go public last year when they were profitable and growing. Well, I believe you had an in-depth analysis of that on uh, TechCrunch.com for us. Oh, did you see that? Yeah, it was one of my it was my longest piece I've ever done for the site. Uh, it was five words uh, or something like that. Uh, but I mean, like, I- I'm just sitting here staring at stories like this, and I'm hearing like seven year RSU window, two years of profitability, and they didn't go public. That's right. And you know, it, it, what's amazing is even on stock options, you know, oftentimes there are more and more companies that are allowing. Um, you know, d- employees to to take a 10-year kind of period where they can kind of um, take advantage of them, right? So they don't have to pay taxes for, for up to a decade. And we're actually hitting those in certain contexts. Because again, like, you know, a lot of these laws were written with, hey, you're going to get this preferred tax treatment, but you can't get that infinitely. Like at some point it has to break. And weirdly, as, as more and more companies just stay private, you're, yeah. you're running up against more and more of these regulations and laws. And now Airbnb is in a, in a really tight position. I mean, I think we talked on the show recently that, what, they were unprofitable last quarter. That was before coronavirus. I mean, they, they expanded uh, revenue slightly, but I believe expenses jumped, if, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah. The sales and marketing costs went up quite a lot in 2019, and then they brought them away from being EBITDA profitable to not being EBITDA profitable, if I recall the summary effectively. Uh, and, and they could rein in marketing costs. I bet they are right now. I bet they're not marketing this heavily in China where people aren't going out and about, but it'll be the revenue declines that probably kill them because they could probably sell the losses with a good growth story. But without a good growth story, nothing makes sense. You can't bring a company to the public markets that isn't growing much or is growing negatively and loses money because that's like the worst asset in the world. Um, So Airbnb has a lot of value. It's a cool business. It's got a great brand. Uh, The market timing sucks. The RSU problem is huge. I wish them well, but they could have gone public last year and they were profitable. They're two years ago, sorry. I mean, they, they've been around for a while. So I feel bad for their employees, but not bad for the, the company, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's fair. All right, um, let's close with something on the earliest stage of the market. Let's talk about seed because, Danny, you wrote some pieces that kind of form a pair looking at signaling risk uh, for seed stage startups and also an interesting look at how many people you should meet as you're raising a seed round. And I kind of was hoping for a summary of these for our for our friends here uh, so that way they could kind of get a, a, a look into your thinking about this data. Yeah, I mean, uh, the seed market has just changed dramatically, right? So I've been trying to collect more and more data sets from companies that have the data that can kind of give some statistical empirical light on how to answer questions like, should I take money from a big fund or a small fund? Should I take it from an angel? You know, am I talking to enough investors? And so I talked to AngelList and Docsend. AngelList has a great data set looking at what is it, what, what, what is the follow-on rate 18 months later, post-seed, for a Series A, if you take money from a top 10 investor, and that's defined in the article if you're curious, versus not taking money from a top 10 investor. And what's interesting is that it's actually changed. Four and uh, years ago, so in 2016, 2017, the data is very clear that taking money from a top 10 investor was a positive signal actually to the market. You actually increased your chances of getting a Series A follow-on, even okay. if you took money from Sequoia or Kleiner in the seed round. And you know that's sort of counterintuitive because the idea is like, well, why should, if Sequoia is already on the cap table, wouldn't they want to do the Series A? Isn't that a negative signal if they're letting it go to market? But uh, in my view at that time, this is sort of my analysis, not AngelList, but it's like Sequoia and Kleiner actually took large percentage ownerships of those companies. And so they actually had their ownership targets often in the seed stage. So they didn't need to kind of invest in the Series A and B. Since then, though, it, the, the trend is actually reversed. Having a top 10 investor 
in the later, you know, more, more recent years has actually been a negative signal to the market. And there's actually been a decline of performance relative to firms that didn't raise from a top 10 investor. Okay. Can I, can I tell you why that is? Because we had uh, Iris Choi from Floodgate on a special version of equity we put on Extra Crunch uh, a couple of weeks ago. And she talked about this exact thing. And she says she will not do a seed extension on someone else's seed round if the lead isn't coming back. Because that, why wouldn't that comp- that investor want to get this company ready for its Series A? So I'm presuming now that the the halo effect of top 10 VCs has faded, and now people are much more curious about the um, the potential signal of, of the handoff of a lead uh, investor around. Because people are, are preempting, they're going aggressively. And so if you're going to let a company find some other lead investor, I mean, hot diggity dang. That just feels really bad to me. Okay, back to you. That's right. And then on the on the Dachshund side, I mean, they, they put together their information. And one of the, the, the interesting trends in there is how many people that the typical seed fundraise talks to, or I'm sorry, pre-seed fundraise talks to. So if you're a founder of a pre-seed company, like what's typical in terms of a, a fundraise? And, and it was very bimodal. So I would say a good chunk of companies that successfully fundraised talk to maybe 20 to 30 investors. Yeah. But then there's a huge swath of founders who talk to 90 130. In one or two successful cases, they talked to 200 VCs um, who they sent the deck to, to unique people. And so uh, my takeaway from this is I've always had this line of like, if you haven't talked to 90 VCs at the pre-seed or seed, you haven't really done a fundraise yet. Like you can't say you failed if you haven't yet talked to 90 VCs. If you get 90 no's, it's probably a pretty, you're starting to get a consistent answer, but you've only talked to five or 10. Like there's just so many different types of investors out there that you really have to get down the list in some cases to get through that that pre-seed and seed. So it was great to see that Dachshund was sort of confirming a mantra that I used to give, but it wasn't sort of, it was more <laughs> anecdata than than quantitative based. Well, now you have the actual data to back it up, but I, I will just say, I'm trying to imagine how I would feel if I, if I was listening to this and I'm like, Danny says, you know, 200. All right, cool. And he's like 199. No. And like 200. <laughs> no. I mean, what, how do you get that time back? Because 200 VCs is like what? A thousand, 1500 emails to get set up. How many bad coffees did you drink? How many offices did you show up to? You know, like that, that is an insane amount of time and effort uh, to raise the smallest round you will raise ever as a startup. You're, you're going to enjoy a lot of time in the playground in the middle of South Park. Oh my gosh. Has anyone ever enjoyed time in the playground in the middle of South Park? And if you're not listening from San Francisco, South Park is a small part of the Soma neighborhood in which many VCs have offices. There's a crappy little park in the middle and there's tons of VCs sitting there. It, it, it's, it's like a salmon spawning point, but for Patagonia vests and disappointment. There's a, I think there's a blue bottle near that though, if I recall correctly. Cafe Centro. Yeah, there is now a new uh, blue bottle in Cafe Centro. Oh, okay. Long time. Okay, yeah. yeah. If you, don't, if you don't like air conditioning. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the one place in SF that has it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Danny's two stories are up on TC. If you have if you have an interest in uh, seed and pre-seed data, they're definitely worth checking out. Uh, we'll put them in the uh, in the story uh, for this episode on TC. So check them out. And I think we're going to stop there. So Danny, uh, a real treat as always to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thanks to Tosh for joining. Thanks to Chris for not sitting us hashtag free speech hashtag uh don't step on me or that flag thing for the revolution and we're out of here goodbye got it danny are you content with that read you look like someone just pissed in your cornflakes what's going on over there no 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 it's fine nope what, what's nope, the I'm emotion I, I this is so ridiculous this is okay, just good. so f-ing obnoxious will you hold on to that anger and then use it on the show please i'll try I'm okay, going to be nicer, but like, well, no, God, God I, fuck. if you're nicer, also, I was very I'm... upset at the clipping of my fucks on the last show.
I listened for them. I was like, oh, I swore right here. Nope, there. And and then I was, you know, fucking these people. I'm like, what's that little like clip? You can hear it. You can do ding. ding, ding, ding. Yeah. 